Welcome to this week's message from Pastor Jeff Spooniebarger at First Baptist Church, Gulf Breeze, located in the heart of Gulf Breeze, Florida. How are you today? Amen. Thanks for the worship, guys, the worship team. And, you know, it's great because when we come together, we come together for one purpose alone, and that is to lift up the name of Jesus. And I want you to know that we're not ashamed of that. That is the reason that we exist. But you know, there's not this false idea that just because we've come to worship and sing and lift up Jesus, that we got it all figured out. In fact, I would imagine that the question that I want to answer for you today uh, is a question that you likely have asked. I know I have asked it and I have wrestled with it and I'm uh, I'm not unique in this. And that's the question of, is the God of the Old Testament the same God as the God of the New Testament? How many of you have ever asked that question? Honestly, yeah? Because it appears as though the God of the Old Testament is cruel. And it appears as though He's unjust. And it appears as though He's unkind. And it, is appear, it appears as though he's, he's brutal even. And there are passages in the Old Testament that frankly when you look at them, they're confusing and they're, they're just horrible. And they make no sense. Unless you settle the issue and you see the, you settle the issue of, of the Old and the New Testament gods being the same God, and you say, if God is revealed in the New Testament as kind and loving and gentle than, than the God of the Old Testament, I must be missing something there. And so I want to answer this question by by a couple of different streams, okay? And I have to admit that I'm going to answer this question by probably making you ask more questions, all right? So you're going to leave here today probably not by going, oh, that makes perfect sense. Hopefully it'll make some sense, but I'm hoping that you'll go and you'll look even deeper into it because God is infinitely bigger than you and I. He is infinitely more powerful, infinitely more amazing, infinitely more kind, infinitely more holy than we can even possibly fathom fathom or, uh, or, or understand. And so we're getting just a glimpse of God through who He revealed Himself to be through the Word. But here's the good news. The Bible says one day we will see Him face to face and we will know Him even as we are fully known. But in the meantime, let's try to make some sense of this, okay? So this is actually not a new question. This is, not a, this is not something that we just in the year 2000, whatever, decided, hey, let's, let's ask this question, let's figure it out. No, this is a question that is asked on every college campus in the United States. How can the God of the Old Testament be the same God as the God of the New Testament? Because after all, the God of the New Testament, we know, is, is, is reflected through the person of Jesus Christ. Colossians tells us that He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And in thing, in, in Him and through Him and by Him, all things were created. And all things are held together. And so when we see the Son, we're seeing the Father. And if you look at the life of Jesus, He was a man who lived in, in uh, uh, perfect kindness, perfect peace, perfect union. And so His life is, is, is one of just this endless love, right? And so we say, okay, if, if Jesus is the image of the invisible God, well, then how do we explain the God of Deuteronomy chapter 7, which is where God says, go into the land and destroy every single one of all these ites. There's seven different ites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Canaanites. How is it that, that God can say, go destroy all of them, and yet we say that He's like Jesus, and Jesus didn't destroy anybody, Right? So this is not a new question. It's, it, it's asked on every college campus. It's in every apologetics conversation, eventually anyways. But it even goes further than that. It started, most notably, in the year 140. A guy by the name of Marcion was the son of a bishop. And this, this man by the name of Marcion looked at the Scripture and he couldn't make sense of it. And so he developed a dualistic theology of God. And he said, we don't really serve that God of the Old Testament. We serve this new God. And he said the first, uh, uh, it, well, he had all kinds of stuff in there. But it was very shortly after he came up with this theology and started spreading it that the church fathers declared him a heretic. Why is this important? Because if we have a God that is different in the two t- different testaments, then we have a schizophrenic, bipolar, 
God that's not worth following. Amen? It's a real question. And by the way, you're not wrong for asking this question. If you're asking it, it's a great question. But I would propose to you that there's actually an answer. And the answer has, has many streams. But let's just try to, let's try to go each stream and then come back and then go again, okay? The first answer is this. In the Old Testament, you're looking at a couple thousand years of writing. In the New Testament, you're looking at about a hundred years of writing. So obviously, you're going to get more stories in a, a couple thousand years than you are in a hundred years. And even more than that, the Old Testament is predominantly the beginning of creation, the beginning of time, all the way through God choosing His own people, all the way through the prophets and the nations, and it comes to the point of Jesus being revealed by God. In the New Testament, it is all about Jesus, the person of Jesus, and then His transferring His response or His transferring into the church um, the responsibility that was His. If that makes any sense. But here's the thing: Jesus doesn't first appear in the New Testament. We have those hundred years or so of of the story of Jesus, but we actually have a couple thousand years of Jesus beforehand. You see, in order to understand the Old Testament, you have to understand the New Testament, and you cannot understand the New Testament without understanding the Old Testament. Because it's not 66 different books divided into two testaments, it is one complete story written by almost 40 authors over a couple of thousand years. And this is the magnificent part of the Bible. The Bible has this common thread that starts in Genesis 1-1 and goes all the way to Revelation 23. And the one common thread is the salvation of mankind, or ultimately, it's Jesus. You find Jesus in Genesis. You find Jesus in Exodus. You find Jesus even in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. How do you find Him? Well, you don't necessarily find the person of Jesus, but you find the foretelling of Jesus. Think of it this way. In the Old Testament, there's a big old arrow that says, everything points to Jesus. And in the New Testament, in the Gospels, there's an arrow that points down. This is Jesus. And then in Acts through Revelation, it's an arrow that's pointing, this is what we do with Jesus. So Jesus is the center theme. Now, now what is Jesus or who is Jesus? Jesus is the revelation of who God is. And so in order to understand the stories of the Old Testament, you have to go into the New Testament because the Old Testament is an incomplete picture. Because remember, it is a revelation of God. Think about it this way. When God created Adam and Eve, how did they know what morality was? What was right and wrong? They didn't except for God said, there's one rule, don't eat of the tree. Now, I don't know about you, but you would think that if there's only one rule, you could probably get that one right, right? I mean, think about it. You can do anything you want, but don't eat the tree. Okay, let's go eat the tree. But it actually unfolds the storyline of the Bible that in the heart of man, we are deceptive and we are broken and we are sinful. So the first dream is this. We have to take all of Scripture together. And if we separate the two and we try to, to, to make this dualistic God, we're really, we're really getting only part of we're, we're looking out of the left eye and not out of the right eye, so to speak. So we look at the whole thing together. Okay, here's the second stream, and this actually is the most simplistic. And if you get this, everything else is easier. If you don't get this, you're going to fight the entire way. Okay? Well, let me explain it by telling a story. Make up story. Let's just play a game, okay? Let's suppose you build a house. Each one of you build your own house. You build it how you want. You build it with the kind of flooring you want. You put the kind of furniture you want. You make it exactly like you want it. And then you call me. And you say, hey, Jeff, I want you to come and visit my house. Well, I say, I would love to. So I come and I enter into your house. And you're showing me around and you're explaining that, hey, I made this because it's beautiful. And I made this because it's functional. And, and you're, just, you're just giving me the tour of the house. And as I'm going through the house... I'm making notes of, okay, I, I like that. I don't really like that. And at the end of the tour, you say, well, how do you like my house? And I go, you know what? I love your house. I think I'm going to live here. So I move in. 
I call my boys and they bring my, all my stuff home. I say my boys. I'll call my friends. They bring my, a moving truck over. We move all of our stuff into your house. And we kind of pack it in. Because your stuff isn't enough. I want my stuff too. But after a month or two, I say, you know what? This kitchen doesn't really do it for me. So I, I tear out the cabinets and I put my own cabinets. Because I wanted dark wood and you put light wood. Then I go into the bathroom and I say, you know, I'd really like a walk-in shower. And so I, I, I destroy that and I start building a new shower. What do you do? You move out? No, you don't. <laughs> you tell me, hey, you need to hit the road, right? But let's go even further. Let's suppose that I start criticizing your house and I start making major changes, not just to the decor, but also to the structure and... I start letting other people in to live in your house. What do you do? But let's say it goes even further. What if I say, you know what? I really like your kids. And I start to abuse your kids. And I start to do unspeakable thing to your kids. What do you do? Well, you know, I, I don't really have a right to, to say anything about it. So I'm just going to you know, let it go. And let's say then I grab a weapon... And I hold your kids hostage and I'm about to take their life. What do you do? You had no idea the story was going here, did you? It's disturbing, to be honest with you. What you do is you stand between me and your kids and you say, you are not going to get to them without going through me. And you take my life to protect your kid's life. How many of you would do that? How many of you would read that story in the paper and say, that is so unfair? That is so unjust of that homeowner. Anybody? Is there anybody that would say, you know, that is a person who just is just totally selfish. How dare they tell a stranger that they can't do whatever they want in their house? See, every one of us in this room understands the concept of ownership when it comes to our house. What we need to understand is the concept of ownership when it comes to God. See, we don't live... Let me say this differently. We live in a democracy. Really, we live in a, a republic, right? But we don't really live in a democracy. We live in a, in a, in a, a, a sovereign uh, kingship. Really, I guess you could even say dictator, but he's a benevolent dictator. What I'm trying to say is this. There is a sovereignty of God by the very nature of who he is that apart from everything else, he literally can do whatever he wants to do at his own will and desire simply because he's the author and the owner of everything. Now again, if, if, if this point kind of causes you to stumble, then the rest of it's going to be very difficult. But we need to get to the place where we recognize that God is ultimately sovereign. There was nothing, and God said, let there be light. Let there be separation between water and land. Let there be animals, let there be fish, let there be human. So everything that is created was created by God. And therefore, God is sovereign and He is ruler over all things. And at the end of the day, He can say those magic words that every parent has used at least one time in their life. And those words are, Because I said so, how many of y'all have ever used those words? Now, do you have to explain yourself as a parent? Yes or no? No. Why not? Because you're the parent. That is your, that is your place. That is your authority. That is your position. And if you say so, it is. See, one of the struggles that we have with God is that we don't recognize His sovereignty. We think that we can accuse His justice or, or, or challenge His righteousness because we don't quite see it the way He sees it, but none of us expect a parent or a homeowner to do or to live within the system that we're expecting God to live within. Rather hypocritical, isn't it? At the end of the day, God can do whatever He wants because you have your very breath because He gave it to you. By the way, why did He give you breath? Because He wanted to. Why do you have another breath now? Is it because you've earned it? No. It's because God gives it to you.
because God chooses to allow you to breathe. Now, we're looking at that and we're going, okay, I get it. God's sovereign. But then, but, but, but even in his sovereignty, just because I said so, it still seems so unfair. But that's where we have to take the next stream. We have to understand God's place, but we also have to understand our place. You see, we in our heart of hearts are not basically good. You say, whoa, 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 I see goodness all the time. Yes, you do, but the only good that exists comes from God. The Bible says every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. The Scripture says in Romans, there's none righteous, no, not one. In our heart of hearts, we are basically wicked. Now again, I know this doesn't play well. I know this doesn't sound good because we want to think of ourselves more highly than we really are. But truthfully, God is absolutely sovereign in all things. And we, at our heart of hearts, are wicked. Question, how else do you explain the evil in the world? How else do you explain the unspeakable atrocities that happen between, between human beings? The things that people do to animals, the things that people do to environment, the things that people do to humans, all of these things have a reason. How do you explain greed? How do you explain lust? How do you explain bitterness? How do you explain murder? How do you explain uh, extreme anger, rage? How do you explain these things if, heart, if, if humans are basically good? The Bible says... That we are dead in our trespasses and sins. It means that, that there's nothing good in us except for that which God places in us and, and moves through us. So, God is sovereign. We are basically evil. And let me show you the depths of the evil in a man's heart. Open your Bibles. We're going to take a journey, hopefully a very consistent and quick journey, but a journey nonetheless through Scripture. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. This is the beginning of, uh, it's actually not the beginning, the first evil that was, was, uh, 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 that was perpetuated, per, per, perpetu what's that word, perpetrated? Whatever that is, between two people was, was uh, Cain and Abel, right? Cain killed his brother Abel. He was jealous, he killed his brother, and then God said, Where, where's your brother? And his answer was, am I my brother's keeper, Right? So that was the first perpetuate, perpetuation, um, per, perpetuosity. But, but that's in chapter 4. It, it only takes one or two chapters, which again is a spirit, span of time, but just one or two chapters for the true brokenness of humanity to come about. Genesis chapter 6, uh, starting in verse 5. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. That's pretty wicked. The only inclination of his heart was only evil all the time. So God looks down on his creation, very young, relatively speaking. You know, I mean, it, it wasn't thousands and thousands of years old that the people were. I mean, the human, humankind had only been in existence for a small period of time. And God says, left to your own devices, you have sunk into desperate wickedness. And he says, I regret that I even made you. And so the Bible says in the next verse, uh, verse, uh, verse 7, So the Lord said, or verse 6 and 7, The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men, animals, creatures, uh, birds, I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah, verse 8, but Noah found grace or found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So he looked at the wickedness of mankind and he said, I'm going I'm to wipe everyone out. Now question, was God justified in that? Well, from a sovereignty point of view, of course he was because he, he can do whatever he wants to do. But from a, from a father's point of view, he was justified. Why? Because things weren't getting better. Things were getting worse. Here's what I know about me being a father. I allow things to, to, to progress. Probably, I probably give more allowance than, than, than Shannon does. She, she's usually a little quicker. I, I, I let kind of things play out a little bit more. That's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just our personality. But at some point, I have had it up to... How many of y'all have said that? In fact, my, my kids like to joke. 
When I hit the roof of the car, that means here has been met and passed. I mean, it's like, it's like New Testament dad becomes Old Testament dad, right? I mean, just, it's there. So God was, was at that point, and he said, I'm going to wipe every... But Noah found favor. And so what we have here is the beginning of the grace of God. And actually, it's not even the beginning. It's, it, the beginning of the grace of God was in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, and God said, okay, I'm going to make covering for you. And I mean, it, it's just, it's all over there. But we have the beginning of, of the, the wickedness of man's heart being revealed to such an extent that God says, I'm going to start all over. He took Noah. He took animals two by two, put them in an ark. Now, here's the thing. How long did it take for Noah to build the ark? How many? Over a hundred years. Do you know what those hundred years were? It was God's patience. Building the ark was a proclamation of the grace of God. And it was calling the people who were witnessing it to repentance. I'm sure that as Noah was building this ark... It became a spectacle. They'd bring their camels and open up the tailgate, sit on the back and drink beer and watch. And Joe, I mean, I mean, it became like a hangout, I'm sure. And as they were watching, what they were seeing was the ark was built. The salvation from judgment was being built before their eyes. And no doubt, Noah was saying, God is going to judge us. But he's provided a way. Repent. But the people didn't listen. And so at the appointed time, God said, Noah, get all the animals in the ark. He shut the door. There was a flood and it wiped everyone and everything off the face of the earth. Now, this is a stream that will help us to understand that in his sovereignty, he can do whatever he wants to do. And in our wickedness, even though we are greatly wicked, his grace is still present. So when God says in in, uh, Exodus 34, I am compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, and I am faithful. He was saying of himself, I have always been this way. You can go back and look at the history of my my interaction with you and see that that is my nature. I don't want to have to judge, but I will judge because he goes on to say in verse 7 of that same passage, yet I will not let the wicked go unpunished. All right, so here's the story of of Noah. Skip over just a few chapters. God wipes everyone off the face of the earth because of wickedness. And then in chapter 11 of Genesis, they were back in the same spot. Wickedness had increased, and essentially, they had moved into God's house and said, you know, we like it our way, so you just move on out of the house and we'll take it from here. And here's what the owner of the house said, no way. The owner of the house said, you are not going to steal my house. Now, that's not in the Hebrew. That's a, that's a, but that's what he said. And he said, okay, instead of destroying you like I did, I'm going to try another route. I'm going to try another avenue. And in chapter 11, you have the beginning of nationalities. God said to all of the people there, you are not listening to me. You are rejecting your creator. And therefore, I am going to confuse you and I'm going to scatter you. And so he scattered them. And in one simple moment, it was like, you know, the Bible says they were building a tower to reach up to the heavens. That was a way of saying they didn't need God anymore. They were going to be their own God. And it was like God goes, watch this. Uh, For some reason, I think of um, Captain Jack Sparrow on this one. He's going, he's going, watch this. He tumbles the tower, according to the Scripture, and instantly their language was confused. It's like like they were speaking Arabic, and then all of a sudden this dude was speaking Chinese, and this dude was speaking Swahili, and this guy was speaking Japanese, and it was like totally different. The Bible says that's where ethnicities came from. That's where nations came from. And because they were confused in language, they all gathered around their own language And then they moved out and they left. Now, why is this? Because they together were building opposition against God. And God said, the only way for me to rescue you from yourself is to confuse you, scatter you, and then come and find you. 
See, instead of offering judgment, he offered mercy. And in the very next chapter, chapter 12, here's what God did. The Bible says that he called a man by the name of Abram. And he said to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God established a covenant with Abraham and it's explained in in Genesis 15. And this covenant was, you will be my people, I will be your God, and I will use you to proclaim my name to all of the scattered nations. Let me say it differently. God said, I will give grace to the scattered nations through the way I bless you and through the relationship that we have. So you see his compassion coming out here. And again, if you look at these stories individually, you go, oh, that's, that's mean, that's cruel. No, it's not cruel. It's doing what a sovereign God should do to maintain a, a relationship with his creation. Because left to our own devices, we don't want God. The Bible says in Psalm 1, the fool says in his heart, no God. Now, in your Bible, you might have the fool says in his heart, there is no God. But the literal translation of that is this. The fool says in his heart, no God. And if we say no God, we are cutting off the author, according to the Bible, and the perfecter, and the sustainer of our very existence. And because God in His infinite mercy knows that we cannot exist without Him, He says, I'm going to be in your life, and I'm going to demonstrate my goodness. To the Israelite, or to the, to the people in these days, He demonstrated His goodness through the people of God. So you all with me so far? Again, I told you, fast and a lot, but just drink from a fire hose, okay? All right, so we have, we have an established that God is sovereign. He, that, that, because I said so is enough, but he chooses to explain himself. He explains himself by saying, you are wicked. You're broken. You're in need of a father. By the way, if you take a little baby and you put him on the street corner, how much chance does he have to survive? Any? You take a little baby, you take a toddler, and you go put him on 98. How long is that toddler going to live? Nobody says to the father, you are so cruel for putting boundaries on that child. Don't you love the child? No, in fact, you go to jail if you put a toddler on the street corner with no supervision and no boundaries. Why do we accuse God of doing the very same thing that, that, we, criticize, or that, that, that we criticize if we don't do? Does that make sense? It made perfect sense in my head. So, it, it's this, we're, we're living in this two, we see how things work here, but with God we go, well, well you can't do it that way. No, we've got to be consistent here, don't we? So, he's starting to reveal the sinfulness of man and the fact that we deserve judgment. We deserve judgment. In fact, in in Psalm 103, I'll read this at the end, but he says he doesn't treat us like our sins deserve. Let's just take a little journey here. I want you to think of, you, not out loud, just between you and God, Think of your sin. What have you done that has brought you shame? What have you done that has brought you guilt? What have you done that has... If, if people knew, it would totally change their opinion of you. You know that God sees that, right? You know that you're, you haven't hidden that from God. Not only is it not hidden, but it is ever before Him. And you know that this God still chooses to love you with a steadfast, unconditional, undeserved love. Even in the midst of your brokenness, God says, I choose to love you. We have an Old Testament book, the book of Hosea, that's this very story. Just for a moment, we won't turn there. But the book of Hosea is God expressing how much He does love us. He says to Hosea, Hosea, I want you to go marry Gomer. Gomer is a prostitute. And she is going to, time after time after time, have men line up and pay her. 
but I want you to love her and I want you to pursue her and I want you to stand in line and redeem her out of that. And after you do that, she's going to go back again and again and again. And this is how he says, he says, this is how I have loved you. There's nobody in this room that would be okay with that in real life. But God says of himself, my love for you is beyond what you can even comprehend. That's the book of Hosea. And so God's God's actions, they seem harsh, but in actuality, they're not isolated events. Let's go to the Deuteronomy 7 passage, okay? Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, or Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's the last book in what we call the Pentateuch, or the five. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, this is the, this is the passage that people have maybe the most trouble with. I had to say all that so that we can explain this, okay? Y'all with me still? I hope I didn't leave you back on the side of the road. All right. So in Deuteronomy 7, verse 1, When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, here they are, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. That's important. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them. Show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. For, here's verse 4. This is key. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, burn their idols in the fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all peoples on the face of the earth to be His people, a treasured possession. All right. So God says, these seven nations who are stronger than you and larger than you, you are are going to drive, I'm, he's, God says, I'm going to drive them out by using you to drive them out. And as you drive them out, you are going to destroy them. Now, how can it be fair that God would use a nation to drive out? I mean, after all, isn't that, um, uh, isn't that unjust? Well, here's where you need to start. These seven nations were all Canaanites, basically. They were just, they were sons and they were, they were extended family of the Canaanites. The Canaanites were in the land that belonged to God's people. God had promised them the land and the Canaanites actually drove them out of the land and they were inhabiting the land without the right, without being the rightful owner. So the Canaanites were the ones who weren't supposed to be there. Not only that, the Canaanites were a brutal, sinful, evil people and they served other gods and not only did they serve other gods but their brutality in serving those gods was evidence was evidenced by their their worship of Moloch and their worship of Asherah here's what was going on in these people they were actually sacrificing their children on an altar to these gods They would take their newborns and they would put them on the altar and they would sacrifice them, kill them to appease the gods. Now, Asherah was a female god that was the god of fertility. And then you had all these other gods that they served. And in that mix of gods, they were doing unspeakable things, not only with children, but they also had priests and priestesses that were doing all kinds of physical acts as offerings to God. There was temple prostitution and all these things. So when God looked at this, He said, This is an abomination. You are doing unspeakable things, and I'm going to judge you. But how long did it take God to bring this passage to pass? Over 400 years. See, it's not like God woke up one day and go, You know what? I think I'm going to destroy them. No, God pleaded with them. He called them. He, 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 he sent uh, 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 
He sent His goodness to them. After all, for 400 years, there was rain and they had crops and they had good things, right? I mean, it wasn't a famine for 400 years. So in other words, God poured blessings upon them and they still refused to repent and turn to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so after the time had passed, when they would be at the point of no return, where they would refuse completely to repent, God brought judgment. And He brought judgment through the people of Israel for a number of reasons. Number one, because it was, it was a way of teaching His people that, hey, you are to be obedient to Me. And it was also a way of Him using His people to tell every other nation, our God is the one true God. See, we don't see this today because we live in a very multicultural society. But back in those days, the Israelites had Yahweh, the God who revealed Himself as, as, as the, the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And all these other nations had their own gods. And the nation that won, that was the God to be served. Does that make sense? So if the Amorites beat the Israelites, then the Amorites' God to every other nation would be the God to worship. And God said, there is no other God but me. And so when He sent the Israelites in to destroy all of these other ites, He was proclaiming Himself as the one true God, the author of creation itself. Not only that, but if all of them were not destroyed, then what we know, because the East, or the Middle East, doesn't look at things like we look at things. We look at things in four-year terms. The Middle East looks at things by thousands of years, by centuries. Their memory is long. Ours is short. You know what I'm saying by that? They will say, you have offended my great, great, great grandfather. Therefore, for the sake of my name, I will bring honor back to my family and I will take vengeance or I'll take revenge over what was done to me or to my family. We don't see things that way. We have very short, narrow attention spans. Here's the thing. Had God not told them to destroy everything, then they would have let time pass and eventually come back and attacked and destroyed the Israelites. Does this make sense? Why would that be a bad thing? Because who came from the Israelites? Jesus. Had the Israelites been destroyed, there would be no Jesus. Because Jesus was in the line of David, right? Who was in the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And it goes all the way back. So by God commanding them to kill everybody there, He was essentially maintaining His covenant with the people of God. And ultimately bringing you and I the ability to have salvation through Christ Jesus alone. So you say to me, okay, well, I, I get the why, but, but how, does that, how does that demonstrate that God's still merciful and gracious? Turn your Bibles to the book of Jonah. This one's fun, because you probably can't find it real quick. Look, look, in the, look in the table of contents. It's okay. There's no shame. It's somewhere between Amos and Micah, I believe. Yeah, there it is. You got Amos, and then you got Jonah, and then you got Mike, Micah. That's page 783. Or, <laughs> just do this. That's the easiest way. This is in the Old Testament, towards the end of the Old Testament. Are y'all okay? I feel like I feel like you're staring at me, and I, again, it, it's like fire hose here. While you're turning there, remember, God is sovereign. Ultimately, He can do whatever He wants to do, and He has the right to do that. We are ultimately sinful. We're broken. Our heart does not seek after good. Our heart seeks after evil. Look at a baby. A baby is selfish. You have to teach them what it means to share. You have to teach them what it means to love. It's our human nature to think about me, 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 me. God is slow to anger. He is slow to judgment. 
but He will meet out ju judgment at the pointed time when we choose, okay, there's absolutely no chance I'm going to turn to you. Listen to what Jonah says. Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Jonah a second time. Now, wait a minute. A second time? Why? Because in chapter 1, God said to Jonah the same thing. And Jonah said, ain't no way. That's in the Hebrew. He said, ain't no way. He said, you want me to go that way to Nineveh? I'm going this way. Jonah went almost a thousand miles away from Nineveh. You want to talk about hatred? He despised the Ninevites. Why? Because the Ninevites were a cruel, brutal, uh, a wicked people. There was nothing good in Nineveh. He despised them. He was prejudiced against them. He hated them. And he did not want God's mercy there. And he said to God, God, I am not going there. I'm going here. And here's why. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was an important city. It required three days to visit. On the first day, Jonah started into the city and he proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. And when the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and, and sat down in the dust. And then he issued a proclamation. And in verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. This wicked, wicked city. God sent a preacher to preach to him. And Jonah went and preached to him. And he, at, at the first day of preaching, the whole city said, we repent, we, we acknowledge our sin, we turn to God. And the Bible says, God relented from destroying them and he not only saved them, but he had compassion and he was gracious. That is the nature of God. God is not willing that anyone should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. Now, don't get me wrong. There will be those who perish, but it's not because God doesn't desire or call after. It's because they reject the goodness of God. It's like you and I went on my boat and you jumped out of the boat and said, don't worry, I'm going to swim home. And I said, but you can't swim. We're 10 miles offshore. And you said, no, I got this. And as you started to, to lose your strength and as your head started to go underwater, I would drive up close to you and you'd push me away and say, no, I got this. I got this. And I said, you don't have this. We're too far. You said, no, I got it. Leave me alone. And I take a life raft and I throw it out to you. And I said, get in the life raft and I'll pull you back in the boat. You say, no, I got this. I got this. And I would be forced to watch your head go under the water for the last time because you've rejected every offer of salvation that I offered to you. God is throwing life rope after life rope after life rope throughout the entire Old Testament. And in here, we see Jonah didn't like that very much. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, this is not, or, or this is, uh, is this not what I said when I was at home? That is why I was so quick to flee. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sin and calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. What he was saying was this, I would rather them go to hell. Or I, I would rather have not been, been born if you don't give them what they deserve, is what he said. I want them punished. And God says, you want them punished, but what if I punished you the way that you are calling for them to be punished? See, this brings us full circle. Because the kindness of God is given to us so that we can be the kindness of God to others. And don't forget... What someone has done to you cannot ever compare to what Christ has done for you. Time after time after time, God extends mercy and compassion and grace. And He calls us to do the same thing. Is the God of the Old Testament the same as the God of the New Testament? I say yes. Turn to one other passage. passage. Uh, turn, if you will, to Genesis chapter 18. This is the story of 
of, the, of Sodom and Gomorrah. Actually, verse chapter 19 is where he destroys it. But in Genesis 18, starting in verse 23, Abraham approached the Lord and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? He had the same question, didn't he? Will you destroy the righteous with the wicked? He said, what if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 people in it? Far be it from you, O God, to do such a thing. To kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you, will not the judge of the earth do what is right? And the Lord said, if I find 50 people that are righteous, I will spare the whole city. And then Abraham, I don't know what he was smoking, but he came and he goes, let me just, okay, so what if, what if you find 45 righteous? Will, will you wipe everybody away if there's 45 righteous? And God goes, no, if there's 45 righteous, I will spare them all. Hey, let me just, what if there's 30 righteous? And God says, no, if there's 30 righteous, I'll spare them. But, but what if there's 20 righteous? And he got all the way down to 10, and, and, and Abraham said, I say Abraham. Moses, uh, yeah, Abraham said, um, what if there's 10? If there's 10 righteous, will you still wipe them away? And God's answer was what? If there's 10 righteous, I will spare everyone. What does that tell you about the nature of God? Is he a cruel, vindictive, mean, unjust, uncaring, unkind, evil monster in the sky? If he's willing to spare an entire city over 10 who are righteous? Now that tells me the entirely opposite story. It tells me that, me that he is compassionate, he is gracious, he is abounding in love, he is, he is slow to anger, he is faithful. He said, I will not destroy them. And guess what? God didn't even find ten righteous in Sodom and Gomorrah. And as a result, he destroyed them all. So, my question to you is this. Will you choose to believe that God is not bipolar? And He's not schizophrenic? He's not angry and rage over here and then kind and loving over here? He is one whole, complete, perfect God. When my children are asked, what is your dad like? I would hope that they would say, my dad is funny. My dad is, my dad is, is kind. My dad loves people. My dad likes to tell stories. And you should know my dad. He's a good guy. Now, they could say, my dad has it up to here at times and hits the ceiling of the car. They could say, my dad makes me mow the yard and do the dishes even after I've been working at Chick-fil-A all day and get in at 11 p.m. at night. Even though it's, I've been working all day, I have to come home and I have to do my chores. My dad will let me go and go and go, but at some point, he calls me to the carpet now, are those things true? They are true. But you see, when, when you ask my kids about their dad, that's probably not first on their list. Although it's true about who I am, they understand that that's not, that's not the bulk of my relationship with them. And I'm saying to you that that's the way we should view our Father in heaven. We should recognize that He does not let the guilty go unpunished. He disciplines us because He loves us, not in spite of it. But He is slow to anger. He is compassionate. He is gracious. He is kind. He is gentle. Sometimes He has it up to here. But that doesn't mean He's schizo. It means He's a good Father. And that's a Father that is worth loving. Amen? So I don't know if you have more questions or less questions. Like I said, there's a whole lot of, there's a whole lot of stuff in here. You're going to have to pick it apart, look at it, go back and read the Scripture for yourself. But I want to invite you, if you're here today, 
If you've had a skewed, one-sided view of God, I want to invite you today to level the field. I want to invite you today to take an honest look at God the Father and Jesus the Son. I want to invite you today to trust Him with your life. The Bible says it's by grace that you're saved through faith, not of your works. You've done nothing to earn God's favor. It's given freely simply because He chooses to. This morning, if you've never trusted Jesus Christ, I want you to know that He is calling your name. He is chasing after you. He is is drawing you to Himself. But just like the one in the water, He will throw a lifeboat and He will come close. But the more you push Him away, the harder it is going to be for you to find salvation. And at some point, according to the Scripture, God will let you have what you ask. No. amazing to me how much compassion God has if I could paint a picture right now if you are that person who knows that God loves you who knows that God is calling you to himself and you're pushing him away I want to paint this picture if I could if I could paint a picture that describes the heart of God now it would be the picture of a God with a tear Because it, as we saw in Genesis chapter 6, it grieved God and his heart was filled with pain. God loves you, but he will let you walk away. But there's no reason to do that. Will you close your eyes and bow your head? Father in heaven, I pray that even now you would reorganize understanding of you. I pray now for the one in this room who's not yet become a follower of Jesus. For whatever reason, Lord, I pray that they would step across that line of faith and they would invite, that they would accept the invitation into your family. Father, I pray that in this moment, your presence would be so manifest that that we would know that we're in the midst of a king and a father. I'm going to stand here at the front. If you want to trust in Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to let me pray with you. You can do it right where you are, but if you need some help, let me help you. This morning, if you're wrestling with something, anything, you can come and kneel here and pray. You can come and speak to one of the pastors. Let's just let these next few moments before we end the day be a time for us to make right with God what needs to be made right. Let's stand. Find out more about First Baptist Church Gold Breeze at fbcgoldbreeze.org.